The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. We are underway. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter, my conversation partner. John and I talk every other week at The Glenn Show, and we're joined by our special guest, Peter R.C. Diacono, who is professor of economics at Duke University and was the lead expert witness for the plaintiffs and the students for fair admissions versus Harvard UNC case recently decided by the Supreme Court. So welcome, John, and welcome, Peter. So thrilled to be here. I'm going to introduce the Glenn Show just by telling the audience that we're sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I am John Paulson, senior fellow. And the ongoing conversation between John and I is also sponsored by the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, uh, which is a, uh, uh, supports the Glenn Show as well. Uh, finally, my uh, producer told me I have to do this. It's possible to like comment, or share if you are listening to or viewing The Glenn Show. We think that if you do that, given that you do like what you see, more people will end up watching because the YouTube algorithm will recommend our show more frequently based on some formula like that. So if you like what we're doing, click the like button. I had to do that, okay? So that's done. Peter, welcome. Thanks. Really glad to be here. Maybe we should say congratulations. Quite a ride. I think I signed on in 2015. And, uh, wow. Wow. Peter, P- Peter was the main guy, correct me if I get anything wrong, Peter, in the data analysis marathon that had to be undertaken in order to parse through the information made available by Harvard University, quantitative information on its admissions policies, what exactly was going on. And he faced off against the estimable David Card, Nobel fame, UC Berkeley, who was the lead witness for the defendant Harvard University in the litigation, and he prevailed. Not at first, but uh, in the end, yes. Uh, At the same time, you know, I really prefer to be known as somebody who studies affirmative action as opposed to, you know, an opponent, because an opponent sort of implies your agenda is driving the research. I sort of feel like present the facts and then you know, we'll go from there. And you know, my goal was to get academic research out of this, and we've been successful. Not as successful as I would like in terms of hitting at the very top, but, you know, we've gotten five peer-reviewed publications out of the process so far um, on a host of things related to, you know, Harvard's and UNC's admissions process. So what were the um, scientific questions, the academic questions, which you've been engaged with that were relevant to uh, the litigation? Well, what was relevant to litigation was you know, was there a penalty against Asian Americans? Uh, and also how big the preferences uh, were at these different schools. So, you know, I think when I came on before, I talked a lot about Har- how it worked at Harvard, but we also had UNC as well. Um, and the two cases actually really shows how affirmative action affects the whole system. So he actually sees the largest racial preferences were actually for UNC out-of-state admissions. Sort of the way that works is at UNC, there's a cap on what share of enrollees can be out-of-state. And, you know, it's like 16 or 18%. What that means is it's a lot harder to get in out-of-state than in-state. And that actually splits uh, the affirmative, the conservative argument against affirmative action in half. 
because the racial preferences are way bigger for out-of-state students. Um, but they come in with the preparation of white in-state students. So you know that they're going to be able to do the coursework. But the in-state uh, minority admits they're coming in with, with lower scores. And so you're a little bit worried about more on the mismatch side. You don't have to worry about mismatch for the out-of-state admits. They're going to do fine. But the racial preferences are actually way bigger there and way bigger than at Harvard. And you know, why would they be way bigger there? Well, two reasons. One, all the ones who went could have got in uh, normally. They're applying to Harvard and getting in. And so Harvard takes their group, and there's not as much left for UNC out of state. And that coupled with the fact that you know that they're going to do all right academically um, means that you, know, you, you could have a lot bigger preferences. Preferences. So how does that relate to the litigation? Well, I, you know, the litigation, there's a sense which I'm not sure how much it has to do with the statistical analysis. Uh, it's are we going to um, treat people on the basis of race or not? I think that actually some of my other work had, on legacies and athletes in the end had something to do with litigation because it revealed how the system worked. So if you look at like, what uh, Justice Gorsuch kept referencing the squash team during the Supreme Court hearings. He's like, okay, you're telling me that you can't think of race-neutral ways of doing your admissions because you really have to have big preferences from the squash team. That, uh, that didn't sit so well. Um, incidentally, I think that's part of the reason I haven't faced a lot of heat is because of my work on legacy and athlete admissions is now that's being, that's very popular now to get rid of the, the legacy preferences. And, and, you know, that's one of the papers we wrote out of the case. One of the hardest things about the whole debate over affirmative action is how readily it brings out the tendency in people to read bad faith in opinions that make them uncomfortable. And I noticed starting 20 years ago, you would argue against excessive racial preferences. And there would always be people in the audience who assumed that you were okay with legacy admissions. So you're this person who's saying, not for all these black kids, but it's okay for the white kids on the squash team. That's good, but... And, you know, frankly, what asshole, what devil, what fool would feel that way? And yet serious people, white and black, again and again would raise their hand and just assume that you are this Mephistopheles instead of somebody who has a problem with unjust preferences in general. So yes, I'm glad that you have that to cover you so that that nonsense can't get in the way of reason, at least not as much as it used to. Well, I think students for fair admissions really suffered from that because it kept saying, why don't you care about this aspect? And there are reasons for that legally that they to go after the racial preferences uh, as opposed to the like, see, I, I don't think there's a ground to, much of a ground to stand on uh, in this, because it's not... Uh, you know, protected class. Uh, but the fact is, you know, it was students for fair admissions who brought out all this stuff about the legacies and athletes. And if you talk to somebody like Rick Kallenberg, he was the other expert witness on behalf of, of students for fair admissions. He's a very liberal guy. The whole reason he wanted to get involved was for the race neutral aspect to it and saying, we need to do something about the class side and has been steadfastly pushing against uh, those sorts of admissions. So there's something that makes me a little uncomfortable about uh, the putting of the legacy and the athletic quote-unquote preference on, a, on the same uh, scale, on, the, on a par with to be traded off against likened to the racial ethnic preference. And you know, I think it goes to this very notion that if I admit for a reason other than test score and grades, I'm giving, quote, a preference, close quote, that privileges the test score grade uh, metric as the thing 
departure from which needs to be justified. And I think that position needs to be justified. The position that, in the first instance, the primary legitimate reason for admitting or not admitting a student is their academic qualification. And if I do anything other than that, for example, admit someone from a family that four generations have attended my institution, and I admit them for that reason, that's quote unquote a preference. I mean, literally it is. I mean, it is just taking the word at its face value meaning, but the legitimacy thing is the thing that I'm, that I'm trying to get to. Is it the same thing to say, I want to cultivate family loyalty to my institution and therefore, as to say, I want to create a racial balance in the demography of my institution and therefore. I don't think the 14th Amendment speaks to the former. I think it speaks to the latter. I think race is race. Racial discrimination is bad, not because it's discrimination, because discrimination is unavoidable. Racial discrimination is bad because it's discrimination on the basis of race. Now, is discrimination on the basis of family tied to my institution as offensive to our moral sensibility as is discrimination on the basis of race? The answer is obviously no. And therefore, this whole effort to socially engineer an egalitarian project, I want class equality. No one has even bothered to argue for the egalitarian project. They just presuppose that it's a good thing. When the institution is, in its essence, an elitist project, it's the university, not, not, not the glee club, not, not the choir. It's, it's the university. So I, I don't know. I, I go on, I, and I apologize for going on. But do you see what I'm? Do you see what I'm gesturing at? I think there's some unexamined territory that, uh, from in terms of moral justification that needs to be explored here. Uh, and uh, it, it, I'll, I'll stop because I've spoken long enough to get you guys to react to that. Yeah, I think it's more that the preferences for people who are already benefiting quite a bit seem distasteful. And well, the, there you go again with preference. <laughs> well, that's deep. Um, that really pushes our understanding of this. In itself, what you're calling cultivating family connections is not immoral. No, it, it's not. But to have the legacy preference, to have the legacy practice continue after you had said that Black and Latino kids cannot be admitted under the bar is so graceless that I think we can do without the semantics, especially, so we're, this is very conditional, but especially because, and I don't know, I maybe, I knew legacy students at, I, I, it's been 30 years, at Stanford, when I was a grad student, I was very young and very, I was a young grad student and I did a lot of theater, which meant by definition, you knew a lot of undergraduates. And I TA'd, you get to know the undergraduates. I had a sense. And I learned about legacy students. Really, that was more prominent in my mind then than any kind of racial preferences where I didn't notice a whole lot of difference. But I remember being there in the late 80s early 90s and thinking there's a certain kind of student here where you can almost immediately tell that they're different and they almost always end up saying that my father and my grandfather went here. So it's not just family preference, it's that there's a kind of white student where you can tell that something's going on in the admissions process and that they're not quite like the others. The presence of that person is not fair if you're going to be more stringent with the Black and Latino students. And those students, it's visible, you can tell. It's not just family issues. You can tell. I'm, I'm going to differ with you, John. I, I, I do think this is interesting. Uh, let me put my position this way. There's an endowment. The university sits on billions of dollars of assets. Who does it belong to? 
Is it a social asset to be deployed on behalf of projects? Or is it the property of what is in effect a club, a longstanding association, a philanthropy? It's civil society. They get to be the club that they want to be. Yeah, I mean, you just socialized you, you, when you made the, the university the site of the balancing of uh, all these different equities. You just you kind of socialized that uh, asset. And I, I, you know, but I mean, you're well, going to tell me there's tax exempt from the contributions and therefore there's an implicit public entailment. OK. Yeah, I think that would absolutely be the argument. <laughs> if Harvard wanted to ignore the ruling, it could by not taking any uh, taxpayer money. It's always interesting where that sort of line is. Does that mean no NSF grants, you know, uh, versus Pell uh, and, and such? But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's uh, the fundamental issue. You know, things like Title IX that. I'd say if we're going to have universities, they have to abide by certain things. You know, there could be debates about the merits of those things. But I think there's a big cost to the legacy preferences in terms of uh, particularly now with uh, the trust in institutions. And what's been interesting is if you look at the polling on uh, trust in higher education, it's, it keeps going down. It's gone down. A lot for Republicans, but even some for Democrats. That, it's funny because I view that club as like the exact opposite of what they keep saying they're trying to do, which is to have diversity. Now, in the end, I don't think they really are trying to have, they're trying to have uh, diversity along certain dimensions, but not in others. They want uniformity being part of that club. I mean, it was hilarious. At your institution, Glenn, they did an article on the response to the ruling, a ruling where that's actually very popular among the American people, a reason, you know, very different from the, the Dobbs ruling. And every student group disagreed with the ruling on the, because of diversity. And there's such an irony there because there's no diversity of, of, of <laughs> on the ruling. <laughs> Uh, which is exactly what happened in the Harvard paper, you know, as well. Including the Asian student associations? I think even those. Uh, or, or they didn't. Maybe they felt like they couldn't speak. Um, and that's, you know, that's the tension with it all, is does it cultivate that um, oh, oh, single-mindedness of thought which I think, I think is anti-intellectual. There's nothing sadder than the position of an individual Asian, especially East Asian. Well, no, I wouldn't even say that. Student today at these universities, they are so muzzled. You can often tell what they do think about all of this, but you can't say that in their social circles. And so they don't. You could, I've seen a couple of them actually change color as they talk about it. It's clear <laughs> that I, I told one of them, I'm sorry that you are in a selective university at this time because this must be a really tough thing to have any kind of constructive conversation about, except I imagine among yourselves. And one of them kind of smiled. I mean, you can tell what's going on. It's hard, but this had to happen. It was time. And this is tough. And the coded way that we're encouraged to talk about these things, such as what the hell does diversity even mean? Makes it even harder to have constructive conversations about it. But this needed to happen. Peter, I'm glad that you did this. What made you, what in your gut got you onto this? Because, of course, some people are going to say, Peter's, you know, all the, it's just racism. And there's a certain kind of crowd who will applaud. I know it's not that, but what interested you about this? You know, the, the case itself or? Uh... The, the whole issue. Studying like the the mismatch, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think that came about through my own experience as an undergraduate and seeing how much easier the economics classes were than the chemistry classes. <laughs> uh, and to, to this day, I think that this still goes on 
universities are not um, upfront about. So then, you know, studying higher education and then really, you know, back in 2011, when there was a protest over one of my papers on this, seeing universities not really willing to engage in you know, dialogue about how, how best to improve the experiences here, that, that probably set me on this path. Um, you know, what that paper showed was, you know, I, I could have written it in a way that maybe wouldn't have led to a protest, but it was really about a data fact of, you look at white males, they come in, those who want to do STEM and economics, they switch out at a rate of 8%. This is at Duke. Black males interested in STEM uh, and economics switch out at a rate of over 50%. And nothing happened after that. You know, we just sort of let the protests happen. Everything sort of died away. I, you know, not, nothing changes. And I think it relates, actually, I know you wrote about this, the, the Georgetown law professor who said, uh, you got caught on video saying, lamenting the poor performance of her black students. Sandra Sellers. Yeah. Uh, and she got torn to pieces, right? Uh, so to me, you know, that idea that, and that, to me, that's a feature, not a bug, referring back to, you know, that, when you come in, you're going to be behind your peers. Like, that's by definition. Unless we're screening on things that we shouldn't be screening on. You know, if like, the SAT score is wildly biased against Blacks, then that would be, you could see having a preference to compensate for that. I don't think that's what's going on. Uh, so... That idea, you're going to come in behind, so your relative performance relative to your peers is going to be worse. It could still be a good thing that you're going to the, the better school and have better outcome, but it's a definite feature of the system that you will be at, you know, further down on the class rank. So now you have a system where actually they come in under with the university saying, we want you so much, we're willing to give you big preferences, and they come out thinking the place is racist. And, and that's, uh, that doesn't seem so good, you know? It's, it's not so good. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's one of the aspects of all of this that really is as peculiar as discussions medieval Europeans had about matters of religion and philosophy, where Again, you have to be very careful to understand what the terminology is, what things you're not supposed to look at, and why. Truly peculiar that you have that kind of preference, and that yet the stylish attitude by the time you're finished is that you've just gone through some sort of racist hazing. And it really will perplex people in, say, 100 years, maybe even in, in 50, to look back on the state of our discussion with this and to see something like what Sandra Sellers was lamenting. And for the good thinking idea that has been that there's nothing wrong with that, that that's not something that we need to try to fix, that it doesn't matter. And that you know, people in business clothes with very high IQs and you know, very concerned, listening to NPR, the idea is that's not supposed to matter. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. <laughs> and I think that everybody will understand why a few of us weird renegades back in the early 21st century thought it did matter. It does. I think and we'll see. Excuse me, John. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I think it's going to happen in a lot quicker than 50 years. I think it's happening before our very eyes. Uh, I mean, Peter pointed out that uh, this decision, uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard in the U University of North Carolina, did not engender the same kind of uh, backlash from the left of revulsion and political uh, uh, determination to, you know, do something about it that the Dobbs decision on the abortion question did. Even though it is in a, resolving in a, quote, conservative direction uh, of one of the big questions of constitutional law of the last half century, it, it is as historic in representing a kind of transformation of the law in its way as was the Dobbs decision. It didn't engender the same kind of backlash. 
And I, I think this house of cards, which Peter described, I mean, the Sandra Sellers thing is a predictable consequence. As he says, it's a feature, not a bug. It's a predictable consequence of admitting at lower. And then you're going to have a witch hunt and you're, and you're going to go around and cut people's heads off if they observe that it's true. And then everybody can see it. It's, it's not like, it's not like, it's not common knowledge that there are these uh, implications of, of uh, preferences. So it, it's corrupt. Uh, I think Justice Clarence Thomas deserves to be recognized here as for decades having made this argument about the affront to the dignity of the beneficiaries of preference the fact that they're not being taken seriously as persons of whom it is reasonable to expect performance like anybody else. You're patting the beneficiaries on the head. You're turning them into baubles to wear on a charm bracelet around your wrist representing the various colors of the demographic universe. You're not taking them seriously. So, I, you know, that's what I would say. You know, I have a, um, a collection of random photos, really random photos that touch me for various reasons that I don't think would touch most people. I say like one every couple of years. Like there's one I have of in a village in Indonesia. There are these people living on the land and it's just a black and white photo that an anthropologist took of a group of women, babies and their teenagers and middle-aged women, there's a grandmother. And in the picture, the grandmother is clearly cracking a joke and everybody is genuinely laughing. And I found the picture very touching. I came across it in a random stack for a reason I won't even talk about, but I just thought, I like how the grandmother is at the center of things, not thought of as off to the side. It's just very touching, the unity there. I have another picture and it's from 2003 and it's, from the extent to which affirmative action was approved of by the University of Michigan decision, to the extent that they were allowed to get it by. And there was a news photo of Mary Sue Coleman, I believe, was the chancellor of either the law school or of arts and sciences at the time. And there was a picture of her on the steps of the Supreme Court beaming. That's the picture of this person beaming at the, the victory that they had just experienced. And I found that picture stirring because I thought she really thinks this. She is genuinely happy that she is allowed to continue this tokenization. And I thought this is what we're up against. She's not a villain, but I thought we're up against this person who is so caught up in all of this phoniness that she actually thinks that tokenization is what institutions ought to be doing. She's not an actress. The radiance of that smile. I will always keep that picture. And it's at the point where maybe she wouldn't smile quite much. We've cut through a little bit of that. But whoa. I have a confession to make to my friend John McWhorter because I was for affirmative action before I was against it. (laughs) And he was against it while I was still for it. (laughs) When his book, Losing the Race, came out in 2000 and he was opining about some of the corruption that we have been detailing here at length, I was saying, I was sitting there saying, Oh, he's selling out black people. He's selling out black people. I was a part of the of the intellectual academic uh, movement to defend affirmative action in the late 1990s and the early aughts. Uh, and we had a brief. It wasn't as prominent as Peter's in this litigation, but we had a brief that came in uh, or- orchestrated by William Bowen, former president of Princeton University and president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation at this time which was funding my, uh, partly, my Institute on Race and Social Division at Boston University, where I was laboring as an economist and, and, and running that institute. And we, we had, if you'll allow me, the following argument, I'll be very brief. Uh, race-neutral substitutes for racial affirmative action will be very inefficient. Because they will all involve applying an altered standard to the entire universe of applicants when, with racially discriminatory preferences, you can target your deviation to the very people that you're trying to admit, and you, can, you give up less uh, on average in doing so, which meant that 
there weren't it 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 was uh colorblind was not uh uh, a uh, effective substitute if you for meeting the compelling uh, uh, interest of, of diversity. That was that was the argument. But uh, but we prevailed in the Michigan. <laughs> we we prevailed in the Michigan litigation. It's funny because if you're getting, I would have preferred if you're going to have affirmative action that you flipped the two rulings. You know the fact that we have in the law school case race can be used holistically where basically you can hide however big the preferences are and everyone can go come to their own conclusion, which invariably leads the beneficiaries to think the preferences aren't very big and the ones who are not the beneficiaries to think they're way bigger than they are. Now, the point system, in my mind, would be much preferable. That way everything's on the table. And when we think about even being for or against affirmative action, affirmative action is a tiebreaker is an entirely different matter than affirmative action where it's massive preferences, more the Abraham Kendi approach of having sort of the, the equal uh, outcomes. That part I think gets um, is key because I, you know, I, I think the preferences are much bigger than people uh, might realize, except for people who are, you know, more foaming. <laughs> Uh, let, let me just clarify, Peter. There were two Michigan cases, one involving the college, one involving the law school. The law school case, they were allowed to use holistic, but in the college case where they had an f- explicit formula, bonus. they had an explicit formula and they had a bonus points for race, that was outlawed. You're right. And, and Peter is saying that by outlawing that and leaving it into a kind of subjective uh, uh, thing, you accommodate a much larger amount of preference. The preference was explicit in the in the uh, in the formula. It was, in, and you could know what it was. On the other other uh, instance, you you couldn't, and it could get out of hand. And you know the another aspect of the way this is talked about tiebreaker is a key term here. The good thinking idea is that it, it is just tiebreaking, and that anybody who's against it therefore is against that. That you would want to have a certain amount of diversity in your class once everybody is is qualified in the same way. Once again. What walking turd would be against that? No one. The idea is that it's not a tiebreaker. But reading, for example, the dissents in this case, you'd think that it was really just a tiebreaker and that that's all that's been going on. It's so cruel. I'm not saying that of the justices, but it's so cruel to imagine that people would be that small as to have a problem with dividing up the pie according to society after everybody has equal qualifications. It's just mean. And it's the deceitful, and it's fake. And yet that's a lot of how this debate has generally gone. And it's good that we're finally getting past well, universities it. are not honest about their admissions. And you can see that because it, they always talk about it being a factor of a factor. You know, well, you have all these factors. And so none really matters that, that much. And that feeds into that tiebreaker mindset. In the other these universities, you, the, the test optional stuff, I think, is hilarious, right? They'll basically say, submitting your test score, uh, if, you, if you decide not to submit, it won't hurt you. How can that possibly be true? You know, it's either going to help you or it's, it's going to hurt you. <laughs> uh, there's no margin there. And, and that was the thing that persisted in the whole Harvard trial over and over again. It's like your race can never be used against you. It's only a plus factor. That doesn't make sense in any... Uh, uh, context that's serious, right? Because it, it's a zero-sum game in terms of who's, who's getting in. And to see institutions of higher learning do that, uh, it, it, it's crazy. Let's talk about the economics profession uh, while we have you on here, uh, Peter, a little bit. Uh, do you find yourself to be an outlier uh, amongst your colleagues at the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, research conferences, and do the editors at the Journal of Political Economy or the American Economic Review look less kindly on your research because of the? Are your graduate students able to get uh, offers from uh, the good places? Your labor economist and econometrician. You're producing students, and you, they are they wearing a black mark because they came up under you know, that kind of thing. Just asking. 
You know, I've always been a bit of an outsider because I'm more of a structural economist. So those guys tend to do, you know, big complicated models that take really long times uh, to, you know, to write the papers. So the MBR crowd's never been really my crowd. I'm a member, um, but uh, the reality is I haven't suffered that much from this. I expected it to be much worse than it was. Um, and, you know, haven't, haven't gotten any hate mail. I feel like um, my grad students are still treated well. And, but I do wonder why, you know, why is it that I've been able to survive and, and uh, because I do look at what's happened to other people and it's gone very poorly. Um, you know, World Warfare being a uh, fantastic okay. example, you know, of that. Um, Roland Fryer to me shows that, that is the proof, a Clarence Thomas is the proof that racism is alive. It's just, uh, <laughs> it, it can be, it's targeted. Uh, uh, is it, they're not protected in the same way because they happen to fall on the wrong side on, on some issues. Um, I think it's, with, what's happened to Roland Fryer is uh, crazy. Um, and Say more, say more. I mean, I'm asking you to say it because, you know, I could talk about Roland Fryer uh, all day long. Uh, he's a dear, dear friend, a former student, a, a, a collaborator and colleague, uh, and, you know, I love him. So I'll just say that. Uh, but I'm, therefore, I'm not the one. We're talking about Roland Fryer, and, and we're talking, the, uh, Peter was saying that he has not uh, suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as much as some people have. Uh, and he mentioned Justice Thomas as well. And uh, I was just going to ask Peter to explain what has happened to Roland Fryer that is so alarming to him, because I'm not an unbiased observer, and I should not do that explanation. Peter. Well, so with, with Roland Fryer, uh, he was really, everybody loved him at first uh, in the economics profession. I think he ran afoul of the university a bit or outside of economics because economists see things a little bit differently. But um, then, you know, he wrote the paper on policing where he found uh, evidence of higher rates of uh, police brutality in non-lethal cases against African-Americans, but no difference on lethal cases. And uh, that did not go over well. Uh, then we have the sexual harassment guard where there were some, some bad claims in there. And I think my understanding is the bad claims were proven to not be true. So, but Harvard ends up suspending him for two years. And so I think what's gone on is that people look at the suspension and they say, well, something, he must have done something really bad for Harvard just suspending for two years. But nobody knows, nothing's been substantiated that he's done that would merit that. And now what's happened, it's not as though two years and now you'll get your life back. That's not the case. You know, he's not getting invited to give talks, his papers are, you know, are getting not not getting the same reception uh, that they used to. And, you know, it's, if anybody who would think they would want to give a second chance to, it would have been Roland Fryer, right? I mean, this is a guy who came from nothing. We claim we want diversity. And uh, I, can't, I don't know of anyone who was punished more for something on the sexual harassment side than Roland Fryer. And yeah, I know there's a bunch of people in the profession who've done things way worse, way worse than Roland Fryer. So it, it, uh, he didn't stay in his lane, and that uh, caused big problems for him. You know, I think we had him out for a seminar at Duke, and there, there was concern about, well, how is that going to go, go over? And this is after he's already served his suspension and such. And he was amazing. I didn't, I didn't actually know Roland Fryer until I had not met him until we had him out. Um, I'd had some conversations uh, over Zoom. 
but he was amazing. Uh, and the way he talks about research and such is amazing. And, you know, to me, he's exactly who you'd like in academia because he said, look, I'm going to publish this even though I know it's going to piss people off because I believe it's true. And even though I didn't want it to be true, he's very clear. He didn't want to get the result that he, he got, but thought it was important to put it out there, there anyway. So now, you know, now I think he's moved on. You know, he's, he, it may be for the benefit of society in the sense that the companies he's doing seem pretty amazing. Uh, maybe that might be better than publishing in academic journals that maybe will get read. Uh, but it, in my mind, it's a huge loss for the profession. Yeah, I, I, I have to comment here. Uh, I've known Roland since he was a graduate student at Penn State way, way, way back 25 years ago. Uh, we've written papers together and stuff like that. Uh, people need to understand if they haven't met or seen Roland Fryer, he's uh, dynamic, he's charismatic, charismatic, he's brilliant, he's full of energy when he presents, he it captivates, he, he has a hobby of doing stand-up comedy. And it shows. It shows with, with his ease with the audience and with his wit uh, and, and with his passion and so on. He's brilliant. He was a Clark medalist, okay? They give this every year to an economist under the age of 40, and it's like a junior Nobel. It's kind of like you're one of the best and brightest of your generation. Uh, he wrote a ton of papers on a whole lot of different stuff. He was on the acting white thing, and he had some very interesting things to say about it. He and this guy, Frederico Echenique, who is a mathematical econometrician at Caltech, have a paper creating an index of segregation based on a matrix algebra recursive formula with, with the eigenvalues and uh, et cetera of the transition matrix of the kind of absolutely superb scientific paper. Uh, he has another paper with David Austin Smith. These are things that people wouldn't know. David Austin Smith was a, is a very prominent theoretical political scientist who does game theory on the acting white issue where they create a little model of social conformity, that the educational attainment is attenuated by your desire not to seem disloyal to your people, and they work out all the equilibrium dynamics of it and whatnot. I mean, these are papers of his that are very little known. He has major experimental social policy research in education that has tested out at the Harlem's Children's Zone or in the Houston Unified School District different concepts of how to deliver educational services and have demonstrated the beneficial effects of certain replicable uh, organizational design and pedagogic uh, implementation strategies for educating kids. This is the kind of thing he's done. And then he took on this policing issue, uh, this question of police violence, got caught, went and sat in the police cruiser of cops in Camden, New Jersey, before he did a single equation, sent an army of research associates into the files of the Houston Police Department's record keeping in order to develop a database to be able to bring a scientific assessment of the question of whether or not the cops are using deadly violence more frequently, other things equal, when the subject is black, and found in the negative. So, so he's one of the leading practitioners of our craft of applied economics walking on the planet today. Okay. And he's a black kid from a lower class background who clawed his way up. It wasn't an Ivy League thing all the way through. He went to Penn State. He went to the University of Texas in Arlington, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. uh, before he got to Penn State. Um, and he made a way out of no way. He's black. He ought to be a hero to people who are teaching black kids about economics right now, not a pariah. Because of what? Because he told an off-color joke or two in the presence of some women who made a complaint out of it that led a Title IX bureaucracy to make a mountain out of a molehill? And an administration of the university, which decided to genuflect at the altar of political correctness on the sexual uh, harassment front, rather than to protect one of the best assets, intellectual assets, that they had on their faculty. 
Yeah, and so, I don't think I think it was in part because he did not play the role that they wanted him to play. You know, that I think is a real problem to me. It's interesting to think what um, a black progressive brings in terms of diversity to the university versus I don't think, even think of him as a conservative, but a black non-progressive yeah, in terms. He's of not a conservative. I- <laughs> not like me. <laughs> and then, you know, you could think about there's different ways in which they contribute to diversity, right? Because what, what they're going to say is, well, black non-progressive is not actually bringing black ideas, which is really limiting in terms of the, the, the contributions, as opposed to thinking it's important that we diversify the different groups, you know, what's amazing to me, if you think about Clarence Thomas's impact on how people view race, it really matters to conservatives. Like when they read his book, they can relate to the race stuff more because they trust him in a way that they're not going to trust a Bromkendi. This is the benefits of diversity. Is this uh, your point? Right. So you would think you'd want to have... Ideological uh, diversity among Blacks allows our general case to be more sympathetically received. Exactly. You know, I grew up in Oregon. The like relationship with the Confederate flag was the Dukes of Hazards. It's like, what's, <laughs> what's the big deal? Then I read his autobiography, and I get it, it <laughs> more. Get it more, you know? Uh, certainly got it a lot more than I had, and it was part because he wrote it, you know. So it, the, the loss with Roland Fryer, I think, is huge, and I think it actually has big implications for the pipeline. You know, who wants to come into this profession when they see what happens, what happens to him? Um, but you were, I just don't want this point to be lost, alluding to what he's doing. So what is he doing? So he's got a venture fund, what he calls the Equal Opportunity Ventures, where he's raising money for uh, projects to actually uplift uh, kids and whatnot. He's got uh, Reconstruction, isn't that the company that does the tutoring, online tutoring uh, for kids that he's recruited uh, scores of these uh, college graduate kids to work as tutors and he's developing curriculum and uh, providing services to families that are want to subscribe to his to the online service. I, I gather that they're doing uh, reasonably well. Uh, what else is he doing, Peter? I think he's actually evaluating DI programs to say, okay, where is what what actually works? You know, if you're concerned about um, the demographics of your workforce, well, where is the bottlenecks coming from? He'll come into the company, get access to their data, analyze the promotion rates and the uh, uh, resource allocation of uh, personnel and identify ahead of the lawsuit that might come <laughs> where a company might be vulnerable because, it, you know, there are racial disparities that can't be justified by the data and stuff like that. Yeah, he wants to do real DEI, not, not, uh, not a virtue signaling thing that doesn't have effects, but actually make meaningful change. Isn't it interesting, though, how there's this gulf between what you two are talking about in terms of DEI and the conclusions that I'm sure Roland is going to come to because they are truth, and people who actually do it? Not hear from people who do DEI, who are genuinely aggrieved and perplexed that anybody could have a problem with seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's as far as they go on it. They, they are not given the other way of looking at this, they're not given to think what are the actual results. They're caught up in this kind of, this prayer and ritual. And they want to know what could possibly be wrong with those three things. As if anybody who questions it is some sort of, you know, moral felon. It's right. There, there are times when I wish that we could get our message out more, but I'm not sure what more we could do. Roland is going to, he's going to get, you know, jumped on again for revealing that most of those programs serve no purpose whatsoever. And yet that's the truth. You could have guessed it going in. But the people who do it will not hear that. 
it's interesting talking to people who are actually in that business. Truly interesting. But but they, I think they do recognize now that the, the training programs don't work. Maybe they be modified, but I, I've heard DI people talk about the fact that the training programs don't work. Often make things worse. And, but then what do they, what is their response? What, what, what's the idea? So if they don't work, then what? That's the catch. Oh, do they think that they don't work because racism is too entrenched? That's something that I've heard. That you know, people are too racist to be open to the training. That that could be. Uh, it it uh, yeah, it, it's unfortunate. Okay, so Peter, what do you think is going to happen? <clears throat> There's been a lot of speculation about this going forward, uh, given that the court's uh, opinion is fairly um, unequivocal in uh, the uh, declaration that the 14th Amendment precludes the use of race uh, in admissions. Uh, Justice Roberts allowed for the possibility that in an essay, a student might reflect on the challenges they faced in life, some of which may have to do with their race and that he didn't mean to preclude that. But he was also quick to add that universities can't use that device as a way around, as a, a subterfuge for continuing to practice racial discrimination. But there's a lot of things that they can do. I mean, you were just talking about uh, making exams, uh, the submission of exam results as uh, optional in the applications process. And there are a lot of other things that they can do besides that. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think some universities are going to go for the cheap way out, which should be the removing of tests. Insect. And, you know, my view that, that you're generally doing that to hide, to hide the preferences, because uh, typically the other stuff, the non-test-based stuff, favors the rich even more. You know, with my connections, my kids can get good summer jobs where they work for free because we can afford to. You know, the teachers write letters of recommendation. The kids go to a private school. That's a big advantage. So the more you can obscure the system, the more you can put in the preferences and it's harder to, harder to show. So I think that's a bad way of going. I think there are good ways of going. Um, certainly the fundamental issue is the one that Roland's worked on in terms of addressing the pipeline. And he's actually one of the few people to show how to close uh, the achievement gap. The, the no excuse charter schools are very successful in that regard. But I think that there's another path um, that I would really love universities to do, which is to actually you know, compete by showing that they can actually help their students by using their data. You know, what's, it's comical to me. I'll give you a, great, a good example of this. Almost every university has randomized roommates. Randomized roommates is great for evaluating what characteristics leads to success, right? Because you say, okay, we could do the study and say, you got assigned a roommate who had a high SAT score. Did that affect your outcome in some way? Yeah. But you would, you would first study it. And then second, you would use the results to actually improve outcomes. So, you know, I told you that result about uh, STEM persistence among black students, black males at Duke. Yeah. Well, if you actually looked, actually looked at the data, as a university, you could see what characteristics of roommates actually led to higher persistence rates. You shouldn't be randomizing roommates in the end. Randomizing roommates in the end is saying, we don't know what we're doing, so we'll just, you know. Uh, Can I just interrupt for a minute to observe from the point of view of answering the question, what kind of roommate pairings lead to better performance? You need to have random assignment to roommates in order to avoid uh, various problems that you'd have in making an inference about causality. Roommates, if they were choosing to associate with each other, might have other things in common that would uh, uh, pollute, pollute or contaminate your inference. On the other hand, you don't want to, that might be where you want to start, but that's not where you want to finish because once you begin to get the information from clean estimates of the effect of the pairing, you want to use that information in order to improve the parents. It just seems really clear. It's remarkable that universities don't do this, right? 
I can't think of a single university who has said, we did the randomized roommates. Here's what we learned. And so this is why we're going to do the roommate matchings the way we are, because we can figure out a mechanism that's going to benefit you know, everybody. And in the case of uh, kids going in the STEM and not uh, dropping out at 50% rate instead of 8% rate, you would advise them in the outset, know that your completion chances are so scant that you might want to consider a different major beforehand. We can just give them the information. They can make their own decision, you know. Uh, but be honest with your students about what things are going to look like here. And then maybe the response is, well, I don't like what you're telling me. They well, these other universities aren't telling you because they don't want to give you the news. Um, so it, it, I would love to see a university go down more of that strategy. So what, what I'm hoping for is like when COVID hit, universities took very different paths. Notre Dame had students come back very quickly. Brown did not. You know, those types of things. Uh, if we get different responses to the ruling, then maybe some universities will be showing that, they, that it works better than others. With COVID, it ended, so we don't, we don't know what policies work the best. But how sad it is it that we don't know? You know, with what, what should be happening is Notre Dame and Duke and Brown should all be looking at their data and saying, hey, this policy seemed to work better. We had a lot lower rates of mental health problems so that when the next thing comes, we respond better. Instead, I, all universities want to do is cover themselves, you know, which is uh, a shame. I was going to say, I think we've identified a theme here. And the theme is that in, in order to do the experiment, it has to be possible to disagree ex ante on the methods so that people take different paths. But if you deviate from what I think is the best policy and I call you a witch, I say that you will have blood on your hands. You know, that's the way they talk during the COVID pandemic. If you didn't shut down, you were taking the lives of hundreds or thousands of people into your very hands and you were a bad person. So what we ought to have had, which was sensible people confronted with ambiguous data coming to different conclusions and proceeding accordingly, allowing us after the fact to assess which would work better, what we had was a herd stampeding in the common direction of, uh, of uh, conformity with uh, the politically correct you know, response. And there were some people who did, some places did break away from that herd a bit. I mean, Notre Dame was an example of one that, that did. They got ridiculed a bit. In the end, I think that their students were happier. Uh, but, we don't actually know that because we don't have the, have the data. It was remarkable, though, that herd behavior, if you look at all the letters that colleges sent out after the ruling, it was like they all went to ChatGPT and said, write me a letter disapproving of the ruling <laughs> and emphasizing our commitment to diversity. Because they all read basically the same. It isn't striking to have that uniformity disagreeing with the ruling, given the views of the population. And moreover, and moreover, in all of those letters, there were, there were phrases such as, our values require us. There was a reference to what it is that we believe, to, to the ideals that we affirm. We're on the right side of history, the, these letters said. Bad Supreme Court of Trump-appointed uh, right-wingers taking away yet another freedom, but not to worry, we're on the right side of history. And then you read the ruling, and Roberts you know, says that uh, in the past, the court has said, uh, we'll trust you. Our university's been saying, trust us. And they're saying, we don't trust you anymore. That's not just the court. Uh, society's relationship with higher education is changing now. Something's going to have to have to move. All right, Peter. I, I think that uh, is a good way to conclude our discussion here of uh, the affirmative action case and your role as an expert witness for the plaintiffs in it. 
Peter Arcidiacono, professor at Duke University, economist and uh, friend. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, at the Glenn Show. Thanks so much for having me, and pleasure to be on with John too. So this is well, great, great. Great to meet you, Peter. So, John, maybe we'll call it a day and uh, get back together in a couple of weeks to do the next episode of our ongoing conversation. Sorry, I was late. I slipped. Sorry. We forgive you. The audience forgives you. And let me reiterate, like, comment, or share. If you like this conversation, let the world know. That'll help us out at the YouTube algorithm and all that kind of stuff. Okay, everybody, take care. Great. Thanks a lot.